Hey everybody, Mark and Ben here from The Friday Habit. This is the second part of the two-part series on value pricing with Jonathan Stark. If you haven't listened to the first part, make sure you go to last week's episode and listen to that first before you listen to this one. So I hope you enjoy this episode and we'll see you on the other side. Welcome to The Friday Habit with Benjamin Manley and Mark Labriola II. The Friday Habit is for creators, entrepreneurs, and agency owners looking for actionable ideas on how to grow their business and be more profitable. We'll pull from our combined knowledge of over 20 years and interview thought leaders that will inspire you and give you the motivation you need to kick your business into high gear. Buckle up. It's Friday. Sometimes it's hard for me to wrap my mind around value pricing, some creative services like uh, like photography, like, okay, this company wants headshots, right? To me, it seems like, ah, oh, it's just a cut and dry thing. Like, it's a headshot or they want an about us video. It's like, all right, it costs me this much to make that about us video. I'm trying to make a 30% profit margin for my agency. So I need to charge this much to the client, you know? I mean, how, how do you, because I feel like with, with developing and things like that, right, you can say, all right, how much is this website going to, you know, generate for you this year? And they could say a million bucks and you're like, all right, hundred thousand bucks seems like a fair price to make a million bucks. So mm-hmm. how do you value price some of those things that don't clearly have some sort of monetary value to them? Yeah. It's more intangible or it's morale or it's um, customer yeah. satisfaction. These are all things that are, are absolutely measurable but you can't necessarily get to an exact number or a unit of measure. But everybody knows, going to Amazon, the first thing you're going to look for is the products with the highest stars. You know, you want four and five star stuff. Have I ever bought a three or star or lower product on Amazon? Probably not. But those stars are completely subjective. They feel real concrete because there's five of them, and it's like this number, and math seems so exact. But it's thoroughly and completely subjective. Mm. You can measure stuff. You can measure stuff. So if somebody came to me and said, we want headshots done, I'd be like, why? Why would you hire like the most expensive photographer in town to take your silly headshots? It doesn't make sense. Like, well, no, this is a really big deal. Uh, This is going to go on some whatever. It's going to be for our TED Talk, our annual conference, or this is for a big internal event. They need to be amazing. They need to be artistic. They need to be, you know, like they tell you. The beauty of this is that the client tells you why they would pay for it. And they'll justify it to themselves one way or another, or they won't. And if they don't, then maybe it's not a good client for you. So inherent in this whole process is that you need to be willing to walk away from clients that aren't a good fit. But there is another thing that uh, is probably on many people's minds here. And there's different kinds of work that are better suited to having a value conversation, the why conversation. It's ideal for project work, like non-trivial projects. So like a six-month engagement. Because there's an emotional involvement it's emotional labor to go through this questioning process. Uh, so it needs to be worth it to you and to the client. So it's kind of like, I don't want to write a proposal for a $50 job. It's like I'd be losing money just on writing the silly proposal just to maybe make 50 bucks. <laughs> right. right. It's the same kind of cost. Like there's an emotional cost to going through an, a meeting. It's not quite an interrogation. You don't want it to be an interrogation, but they really have to think. They need to show up and really think, have good answers to questions, and if you're doing something commoditized or they see no real meaningful difference between you and the next guy, they're not going to engage in that costly emotional exchange. They're just going to be like, you know what, never mind, we'll just get somebody else. 
it's great in a sense is that it automatically filters out clients for whom the value is really low. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So one thing I was wondering about when it comes to that photography example and brought up another question is that what if you're doing a service that is a part of a bigger system and you don't have a lot of control over what value that provides in the end. So let's say I build a website, but I have no control over how they're doing the ads that run to that website and stuff like that. How do you uh, take that into account? Same thing. Why would you hire someone like me to do this little piece? Why don't you just pour ad dollars on it? Right. If they give you an answer, then you've got something to work with. If they can't give you an answer and they're like, yeah, you know what? You're right. The conversion rate's really not that bad. We could just, it'd probably be cheaper to just throw ad dollars here and drive twice as much traffic at our same bad conversion rate. It'd probably be, you're right. We should probably just do that. But if they came to you already, the odds are pretty good that there's something that they believe you can contribute. It might be something someone told them. It might be a gut instinct. So you do need to uncover it and make it explicit. Because if you don't, you're not going to be able to have any confidence one way or the other that you can actually move this needle that they want moved. But at the end of the day, if it's, if it's an upstream thing like branding or um, early, early design, it's intangible, but it's real. It's intangible, but it's real. They can say, we just really want to hire a professional for this. We've done it in the past. And the photography or whatever, it just made the whole site look janky. It just, was, it just looked bad. And it undermined our whole brand. And you'd be like, well... Mm-hmm. all right, how do you know that happened? How are we going to judge that I, that I don't do the same thing? I don't make the same mistake. And they'll give you some kind of metric. There'll be some story that they'll they're like, oh yeah, there's this, this one time something happened and they'll tell you this story about something that was just dissatisfied them and they don't want to have that feeling again. And it might not track straight to sales, but if they can uncover a metric that you feel like you have control over and it's not way downstream like sales or churn or something like that, then you can say, all right, I can, that's my contribution to this overall thing. I can't control the downstream stuff, but I can control the fact that maybe it's like uh, the board of directors thinks the photos are amazing. Now I've got like a group of people who I need to, so I'm going to be like, all right, I need to talk to the board of directors while I'm doing the shots. I need to find out what's going to please them because that's the metric. Interesting. So it sounds like it doesn't have to be quantity or it could be quantitative, qualitative or something else, even almost a little bit more subjective as long as you know what's going to please them. Yeah, I've got this one student that's ostensibly a copywriter, but she's niched way, way down into a really unusual and high ticket area. So her clients are selling really expensive, specific kinds of software. And she'll sometimes get a request like we want you to write us a white paper they know they need a white paper somehow so that's their self-diagnosis we know we need a white paper and sh- and she'll say why she could say great how many pages how many words when do you need it what's it about but no she says why do you need a white paper and usually what they're going to say is they'll either say we uh, we aren't getting enough you know for demand gen we aren't getting enough signups to our mailing list and it's not converting into demos or whatever but the other thing that they'll say is that uh, we want to be perceived as thought leaders. Mm-hmm. And so the question I had her start asking them, because it was pretty common that they would say that, how do you know you're not a thought leader now? And they'll be like, I don't know. And she'd be like, okay, well, how would you know? Who do you think is a thought leader? What's different between you and them? And they'd say, oh, well, that guy over there is a thought leader. How do you know that? Oh, because he shows up on all these podcasts. He spoke at TED. He did all, the, da, 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 all these things. Like, okay, so, that, so what you really want 
is to be speaking at TED and for doing all these other things, get interviewed by the press and show up in TechCrunch and all these other things. Yeah, 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 that's what we want. So it takes something really, really intangible like thought leadership and turns it into something that she can measure. And she can decide whether or not whatever they think the measurements are, she can say, like, look, I can't get you in TED. It's like, I, I can't do that. But if the metric is, you know, we want to be featured on TechCrunch or whatever tech blog, she's oh, I, I definitely do that. And then keep going in the conversation. But why does that matter? Who cares? Well, we really need that to get, you know, uh, we want the CTO to look like a rock star so we can attract better talent when we're trying to hire. So see how I'm like drilling into a very mm -hmm. vague request to find out like, yep. how am I going to hit a home run for you? I need to know where the wall is. Who's going to judge whether or not this investment was worth it? And imagine the shift in the conversation when they say, hey, copywriter, we need you to write us a white paper. And she turns the whole conversation around is like, oh, what you really need is these other thought leadership metrics moved and I can help you with that. There might not even be a white paper involved. Yeah, man, this is so good, but also <laughs> so scary uh, because it's a complete uh, mind shift change and it requires you to have to talk and communicate. And, <laughs> you know, it's like I think a lot of creatives have a difficult time interacting uh, with clients and, and whatnot. And so this is forcing you to like really have deep conversations and ask hard questions. Well, so here's the beauty of it is you only talk about 10 or 15% of the time and you're just asking open-ended questions. So for folks who, you know, most people well, right now, of course, everyone's doing everything remotely. But if you're normally doing this over a phone call and not in person, or even if you were in person, I'd have some notes next to me where I'd write down maybe 12 variations, you know, th three or four variations on each of the three categories of questions. And I just keep asking questions until I've got an answer. So I don't really have to be smart. I don't have to impress them. In fact, the less you talk, the better. You want them talking because you need all those words for your proposal. So as you're going down the list in, you know, in a, a polite but firm way, I'm like a dog with a bone. I'm not going to let go of a particular, I'm not going to hang up the phone call without having some clarity, some really strong clarity about what the success metric is. I need to understand the business case. So it basically amounts to, you ask why, and here's, here's what happens. People who are new to this always do this. They get all nervous. They're going to try this thing Stark told them to do. I'm going to try it. And they ask why once. And a classic example would be like, um, we need you to build us this big software system. And then, you know, my student will be like, why? <laughs> and the client will be like, well, because it'll be more efficient. And they're like, oh, good answer. Okay. <laughs> it's like, and then no. they'll move on. It's like, no. And then the next question in your head, you wouldn't let, I've never let this come out of my mouth, but in my head, I immediately think, so what? Uh huh. So then you say, so what in your head? And then it comes out more politely, like efficient in what way? Yeah. And they'll say, well, blah, blah, blah. And eventually you'll get down to something they're measuring because the reason you're there is because they know something is wrong. Mm -hmm. It could be that the old status quo, something broke and, you know, the toilet used to flush, but now it's clogged. So like something changed. Or if it's something like Amazon came into our market and now our margin, we're getting destroyed. So we need to improve our margins by cutting costs. Okay, now I've got something to work with if I'm a person who builds internal software systems. So what we're really trying to do is decrease your labor costs so that you can have better you know, uh, margins to compete against Amazon. Well, I can't promise that you're going to beat Amazon, but I can promise that I can build some software automation that will increase productivity by 20%. Hmm. Is that acceptable?
Yeah. See, I also feel like this is really healthy for people because I feel like it it's shifting you from being just a service provider a little bit more into a sort of consulting role as well as you have to be thinking like a business owner. So you're kind of bringing yourself up to the level that they're at and making yourself as a partner, not just saying, you know, I'm a commodity or whatever, but you're saying, Mm -hmm. Hey, I'm trying to help you succeed in the end. And I remember when I first started doing that with my business, it was a little scary because I didn't know if I knew what I was talking about. And I was, I was scared (laughs) that if, if when I start asking questions, I might not understand the answer and they might use language I don't understand because, you know, if I don't have a business degree, how can I understand everything they're telling me? And then I realized it's okay to admit when you don't know something and you can say, Hey, what do you mean by that? You know, or say like, I'm I'm not familiar with that term. And a lot of stuff is insider language for a lot of these companies. And, and most people that they're, other people are talking about have no clue what they're saying, but they don't admit they don't know. So they're Mm -hmm. not learning. They're not understanding the real problem. So it's okay to admit that. And I think that even builds trust with clients to be like, Hey, what do you mean by that? I'm not familiar with that term or whatever it might be. And then I think just that fear, uh, part of it for me has just always been that not being sure if I could understand their answer, but I just encourage anybody that's doing this, that it's okay. And it's, it's one of those things that you'll get over with time and be willing to admit you don't understand it. When it seems like something too, that is going to push you to be a better business owner and a business leader, because in order to go into a meeting and ask these tough questions, like you're going to have to do some research. You're going to have to understand um, ROI and all these other kind of things that, you know, take place in a business. And so it's really a challenge, I think, to all of us, right? Like what, just to become better business leaders and not just fly under the radar and not just do stuff just to get an hourly rate so you can burn a bridge and move on to the next client so that you can get that money and burn a bridge and move on to the next client. You know, I think overall it's, it, if you can start to practice these things, it can make you better and it can make your business more profitable and uh, stronger. Another question I have, uh, our, our agency is based off of retainers. So we mm-hmm. uh, essentially, you know, work with people on a month to month that's ongoing. Earlier, you mentioned saying, oh, like a six month engagement or, right. uh, you know, a project. Uh, I've over the past couple of years have tried to move away from projects and just you know, our particular agency is more of like a creative agency. So we'll help you with, you know, video or podcasting or Mm -hmm. some design work or different things like that. And so I try to, you know, sell it as, Hey, we'll be your in-house, you know, creative department. uh, And then this is what the fee is for us to do that with Mm -hmm. you. What, What do you, what do you see as like the difference between like a retainer, which has brought a lot of stability to my business and has you know, allowed me to weather difficult storms because I know that certain amount of money is coming in opposed to doing a project, which is like, all right, a hundred thousand bucks, six months, and then that's it. Right. Uh, A whole bunch of things there. So yes, I think that a project in my mind is a very specific thing. It's got a beginning, a middle and end. It's going to have some kind of launch or delivery or something at the end. It's not an ongoing access to your hands or head. And that is, and the bigger they are and the riskier they are, the more likely value pricing is going to be a really good way to go. So what you're describing uh, as a retainer, how do you price it? Well, let's not even get into that yet. So there's a couple of aspects to it. First of all, it's basically a subscription kind of a relationship. Mm -hmm. But that's independent from how you price it. Yeah. So, I mean, is it the same price every month? Yeah, exactly. So it's, you know, I I try to figure out like what roughly are the needs of a client. And then once I figure those things out, then from there I can say, all right, it's probably going to cost us this much to kind of do that. 
Mm-hmm. And then once again, it's it's almost like hourly, but I'm not doing any type of billable hours or anything like that. All right. So you don't track hours at all? No. Okay. And, and what does the client, what's the promise to the client? Like for this $10,000 a month, you will move some needle or what? Yeah. I mean, for the most part, right. It's, it's right now at least is like, for instance, one of our clients, we, you know, produce their podcast. So we, you know, do all the graphics, we do all the social content, we produce the podcast and we release it every single week. And we, we just ongoing and we do that. Yeah. So, I mean, in a, it's almost like agency level staff augmentation and, you know, where if they had an, an employee or a team of employees internally, they would all be getting a monthly salary, presumably. And, you know, they'd have all of the the risks and rewards that come with having, you know, a team of five people or whatever it is on the payroll. So you've created a, a subscription style model that has pros and cons, just like everything else, you know, so like the, the relationship is profitable to you. And uh, for the time being, it's profitable to the people who are paying for it. So every, everybody's happy. It's a f- uh, favorable mm-hmm. trade, equitable trade for both parties. You do set the price based on the customer situation. It's not like you have on your website, it's 3000 bucks a month right. for X, Y, and Z. So you're pricing each one individually, but they're not value priced the way you described it. You're thinking about well, what do I need to do, scope mm-hmm. first, and then putting a price tag on that that you can live with and feels profitable and and they either accept it or right. reject it. So it's kind it's not value price, it's basically like uh, um, it's cost plus, but I love that you're not selling them a bucket of hours because that a lot of people will call a monthly retainer that entitles them to 80 hours of development work per month. Like that's just hourly in disguise. Right. You're still tracking hours. They're still going to have fights about how come something took so long? How come this didn't get finished last month? It was supposed to get finished 2 months ago. We've been paying and paying. It's not getting finished. I mean, it's nice because you can theoretically get paid for the month in advance instead of chasing invoices yeah. after or chasing payment after. Um, and for an agency that's maybe trying to make a transition to value price projects, that might be a good way to start. Um, if you've got a lot of employees and you've got excess capacity, they're sitting around doing nothing, you might want to at least sell the capacity. There's, there's some reasonable reasons to do like a bucket of hours style retainer. Uh, but the retainers I always sold as a soloist and as a, someone who positioned themselves as a mobile expert, a mobile consultant, were advisory retainers where I was selling access to my expertise. So you've got the owner, whoever the contact was, had 24-7 access to ask me an unlimited number of questions, and I would set a certain expectation of how quickly I'd get back to them with answers. So it's kind of like uh, if you imagine I'm an architect and somebody says, hey, we want to hire you. You're the best at what we want. You're the best at industrial chicken coops. You're the guy. We love your book. We saw your YouTube videos. You're the only guy we're talking to. We've got to build this gigantic industrial chicken coop or whatever. Okay, great. So I designed the thing. Here are your blueprints. Here are the plans. Here's everything you need to do. Here's how the whole landscaping is going to work around it. You can go have fun with that on your own and have a builder. I can introduce you to a builder who can actually implement it for you. Or maybe you have someone and you want to shop around or whatever. And they're like, well, couldn't you, couldn't you kind of stick around and make sure it goes well? Now we're talking advisory retainer where you've created a blueprint and they're going to go off and build it or have someone build it. You don't do that. You're not a pair of hands. You're doing the high value upfront strategic design planning work. But if they want you to oversee, not manage, but oversee the project. So while the building is happening, if anything unexpected crops up, oh, there's a giant boulder here. There's an underground stream that we didn't know about. Now you can say, okay, now that we know this, I would 
work around it in these ways. You don't actually make the work around, you just design the work around. Or if uh, people are maybe not using the right kind of, I don't know, corrugated steel for the, for the roof. You'd be like, oh, you guys, you missed something here. It's supposed to be corrugated steel and you're using plywood. That's not going to work. So it de-risks the, the most expensive piece of the build out for your client. So they'll pay you like that. They'll pay you like an insurance policy to essentially walk around and make sure that stuff's not getting screwed up. And you, I mean, hopefully it's obvious how this could translate into like a software project or an annual marketing campaign or some sort of, um, I don't know, disaster recovery or who knows what. I mean, it translates to all different types of businesses where there's a, a blueprint phase where a smart person has paid a lot of money for a short period of time to come up with a plan. And then there's a phase where the plan gets executed and a lot of people will do both. They'll do the planning and the execution. I would say over time you want to move away from the execution, have other people do it, but get, uh, but oversee those in some cases where you're just getting paid for an advisory retainer to make sure the project doesn't go off the rails or at least to help ensure that it's not going to go off the rails. So if someone wants to get started with value-based pricing, where, where is a good place to start? I mean, is it just jump in, like just cold no. turkey, boom, <laughs> no, go to your no. next meeting and be like, Please why, don't. why, damn it, <laughs> you can't handle why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've said it a few times, it's a big mind shift. So you want to do it slowly in a non-risky way. And there's a couple of ways to do that. Uh, I think the easiest way, and strictly speaking, it's not value pricing, but it's going to get, if you're just doing hourly projects now, this is a really interesting way to start. It's really easy and relatively low risk. Let's say somebody says, hey, um, you're a copywriter. I want to pay, what's your hourly rate? Uh, 50 bucks an hour. Okay. Uh, we want to hire you to write a white paper for us and just bill us by the hour. And when you're done, you're done and we'll pay your invoice. Say, okay, great. Uh, and they'll say, can you give us an estimate? Yes, I'll give you an estimate. So you put together an estimate and the first option, let's just say it's um, 100 hours at 50 bucks an hour to do the, all the research and produce the white paper. So what's that? 5,000 bucks. So you'd say to them, yeah, uh, so you've done nothing different. Normal conversation, you just take their order and you create an estimate and you'd be like, at 50 bucks an hour for 100 hours, it'd be $5,000. Or, now this is the only thing you need to do differently, or I'll give you a fixed price option that's 85% higher than that. So what's that? 5,000, so it'd be like nine, about, call it, yeah, like about $9,000. So you'd say, all right, for $9,000, I guarantee that we won't go over budget. You won't have to come back to your boss and say, oh, we need more money because the white paper's taking longer. And I'll take all the risk that you would be taking if you go with the hourly option. And what that does is it exposes that inherent risk of paying someone by the hour based off an estimate. This is especially, this works great in software because it's so famous for going over budget. Right. So if you have, you know, like a website build or anything like that, and you say, ah, we think it'll be $10,000, maybe, maybe it'll be twice as much, or you can pay us 18000 and you won't have to worry about any overages. You don't have to worry about change orders. You don't have to worry about any of that. We will get it done for 18000 or you can roll the dice and do it for 10, maybe. And a lot of people are surprised when they do this that a real business owner hates risk. And they, are, they might pay that 80%, 85% premium to not have that risk. Because buyers, clients, they hate paying by the hour for stuff. 
Like for any big project, it's very scary. They're taking a lot of risk. They're assuming you're great at doing estimates and you know you're not. Yeah. And they know you're probably not. So, you know, so what do you end up doing? You make the decision theirs. So you say, hey, you can either take the risk or I'll take the risk. If I'm going to take the risk, it's going to be more money. And here's the funny thing. When you go to try this for the first time, you might think, yeah, I think I, I could probably do it for, you know, $100 an hour in 100 hours. It'd be like $10,000. Um, and then Stark wants me to tack on uh, an $18,000 option. No way could I do this for $18,000. I'll get killed on scope creep. I'll be wishing I never met this client. What that tells me is you think you're off by basically more than double. <laughs> right. You think your estimate is so bad that you wouldn't be willing to, to take the risk of an 80, 85% premium on top of that. So raise your estimate and be honest with yourself because what you're probably doing is lowballing on the estimate to get the work and then, oh, how could I have known that this was going to actually take twice as long? Right, yeah. That's back to the uh, more ethical way of doing things. <laughs> yeah, people, people a lot of times say value pricing or pricing the client, it's sometimes called, is unethical because how is it fair to charge two different clients different amount of money for the same work? And I'm like, um, first of all, there's no such thing as two, two different projects for the same exact work. It doesn't exist. Right. The other thing is, it seems more unethical to me to give someone something that appears to be a price, $10,000. But it's actually an estimate. Even if you say it's an estimate, they have to make a buying decision. Now they're trapped. Once you're you know, all the way through the budget and you're only halfway done, now they're in a really bad situation. They either have a huge sunk cost they're going to throw away or they have to keep going potentially, you know, with, with something that feels like it has no end in sight. Yeah. And, and I actually wanted to ask you about the difference between, you know, how you view a product tie service versus value-based pricing. Yeah. Um, you know, I, as you know, we do more of a product tie service because I do, I also agree with the fact that I, I think it's, it's borderline unethical. I, I'd say for me, I don't feel comfortable doing it as far as like telling somebody, Hey, here's an estimate for your project. Who knows how long it's going to take? And then kind of making them pay for my bad estimate. Yeah. So we, we do a, you know, productized service where we say, Hey, for your website build, it's going to be, um, this is how the process works. It's a pretty specific process. And then here's the flat cost. You're mm -hmm. not going to be any surprises. Here's exactly what's included. And they just know that going up front. And we have a couple of tiers, you know, for bigger or smaller projects, but it's more productized than value-based because I'm right. not going in and saying, hey, what's the value of this to you? It's more like, hey, here's how the process works. Um, right. So what are the, what are the like, advantages and disadvantages to those, those two things? Yeah, I'm a giant fan of productized services, as you know. I mean, technically, you could value price it in the way that Coke value prices 12-ounce, you know, cans of soda. And the way that, that airlines and hotels price their rooms. You, theoretically, you can price it, value price at scale, but that's not really what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. it, the productized services are a great way to ditch hourly, a great way to stop trading time for money, a great way to start to benefit from getting good at doing quality work fast. If you're billing by the hour, the more experienced you get, the more you're punished mm -hmm. because you get faster at doing really good stuff. And don't tell me you're going to raise your hourly rate because you're not. You might raise it a little once in a while, but people just don't do that uh, in general. It's too hard for the clients to swallow. So the beauty of productized services is that you find this thing that you, is relatively repeatable. It's easy for clients to get their head around it. You know, it's a product in the sense, like if you imagine uh, vitamins on the shelf, it's got a label on the front. It's got some benefits, 
not every single ingredient. Those are on the back. It's just got the big benefits, what to, what to expect from this vitamin D. And it feels tangible to them. They can process it. They understand what it is. They understand what the benefits are. They understand how much time it's going to take them, how much money it's going to cost them, how much time it's going to take you probably. Or maybe they, don't, they probably don't even care. I just mean more calendar right. time. Like, sure. is this going to take a month or is it going to take six months? And the way that you calculate the price, it, like I said, theoretically it could be value price, but that really is kind of uh, undermining the benefit of productized services because the real benefit of productized services is that they're really easy to sell right. compared to having these emotionally laborious sales interviews and, you know, uncovering the value and, you know, and then you've got this custom project, you still have to, you do still have to manage the client throughout the whole project so that you stay on track and you hit the goal and you don't get killed by scope creep and all that stuff. It's much riskier to do these big projects. Mm -hmm. So it decreases the risk. It makes the sales cycle way, way easier, especially if you hate doing sales. Mm -hmm. And uh, the downside though, potentially the downside is that you can leave a lot of money on the table. Yep. Where somebody who would have paid you a lot more comes along and doesn't have to pay you a lot more. But for me, the pros and cons, especially for, you know, small firms and independent freelancers, being able to switch over to that, you know, not you know, fixed price, not time for money type of approach, it gets addictive really fast. I mean, you could speak to that. I'm sure, you know, there's a reason you've been doing it for years. It becomes predictable. You can have a funnel. You can get paid in advance instead of in arrears. You don't have to track your time. There's so many benefits to it. Yeah, I, I personally love it. I bet I'm always intrigued by value-based pricing and, you know, I'm always trying new business models and stuff. So I'm always, you know, I'm always thinking, okay, how, how could I try this? Because I do think that there's so much there with value-based pricing. And especially, I think that's where it comes down to it is with smaller businesses that we work with most of the time, it's pretty predictable. And I feel like I'm offering great value for the price and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But if we were, if I were to start an agency that does more like, Hey, these are long ongoing high stakes projects, then I would, I would switch right to value-based pricing. Cause it's like for that kind of stuff, you're looking at huge projects. You're looking at you know, it's worth it to have those in-depth conversations because you're going to be working with somebody instead of building their website in a day, you know, you're going to be working with them for six months ongoing. It's like, that's a deep relationship. You do not want to risk um, <laughs> any surprises in something like that. Yep. Yeah. I've got a really hard and fast rule about project, you know, client um, taking on clients for project work that I, I'm not going to work with anybody. I wouldn't want to go have drinks with mm. because that, that rule solves lots of problems down the road. Because it means that you communicate well. I have a friend actually said to me once, and I like this. It might have been you actually um, said, uh, "I won't take on a client unless I can make them laugh in the meeting." That's I was just about to say that, so maybe yeah. it was me. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> if if they don't if they don't crack a smile at least by the end of the meeting or laugh at something, then I'm like I'm I'm a little bit concerned that maybe. I don't know. It's, it's hard to tell, but yeah, it's like you said, it's like, if you just don't get along in that kind of like, Hey, let's go out for drinks kind of way, then you just know there may not be that same level of trust or maybe they're only in it for what you can give them and they don't care about the relationship as much. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it scares me if it would scare me to get into a big risky project with somebody who I didn't feel like I was on the same page with, like it wasn't communicating. We didn't click because there's going to be, there are going to be surprises. There's going to be bad news. Like yeah. it's not going to go smoothly. Mm -hmm, it's going to yeah. be rough and it's not going to be fun. So if you've at least got a collegial, friendly relationship with the client, I mean, I have tons of clients that I'm that I still like exchange Facebook messages with. It's like mm. it goes, you know, or Instagram, whatever, whatever we're on to these days. Yeah, Twitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. I think that's super important. If I were if I were someone in your shoes where you've got this productized service, um, 
and you, but you wanted to kind of experiment with value, uh, value-based pricing, what you'd want to do, if we were working together, I'd say, okay, where are the big, huge, risky projects? Mm-hmm. What kind of businesses are going to have these big bet-the-business kind of projects where your expertise could tip the scales between disaster and success? The first one that came to mind would be, it, this, I'm completely making this up. I, maybe this has already happened. Maybe it, it never will or who knows. But if Squarespace was going to redesign their interface, I would want to hire you. If I was at Squarespace, I'd want to hire you or someone like you who's been using the interface for years and years and has been teaching people, normal humans, how to use the interface. Your expertise in that area would be amazing. And you probably, you wouldn't have to build it. You wouldn't have to design it. You could just, they could pay you on an advisory basis to have you sit in meetings or weigh in on user testing or who knows. I I don't know what it would entail, but maybe a surprising client Mm -hmm. idea that is very different from your normal kind of client, but it would leverage all of the expertise you've built up over the years. Sounds like you need to email Squarespace, Ben. (laughs) (laughs) Gonna make another trip up to New York soon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, man. I if if anybody listening is like me, their minds are blown right now, and they're probably uh, their brains hurt with all this good <laughs> knowledge. And I, yeah, I really, really appreciate you being here for this. Anytime. I uh, yeah, I guess one thing we like to to leave people with at the end of each episode is, you know, what is one practical thing they could do this week to t- kind of take a step toward value based pricing, whether it's a resource or an actual step they can take in a meeting or something. What would you recommend to somebody as a as a kind of first baby step towards this? Well, a first an educational step is to uh, I've got a seven day email course on value pricing. It goes into all of these things in great detail. Uh, it's totally free and you know, you just check it out and it goes, if you reply to any of the messages, it goes straight to my inbox. So if you have questions about a particular message, we can start a conversation there. That's the best way to get in touch with me from a, what can I do this week that I have control over? I would think about my positioning because none of this, none of this is going to work. If you look like every other freelancer to your clients, if they can't meaningfully tell the difference between you and someone else, they're going to go with the cheapest one however they choose to to judge cheapest, whether it's hourly rate or fixed prices or whatever. So if you're just like another web developer, you need to do something about that for any of this stuff to work. Even regular, even if you still build by the hour, you you still want to be differentiated from the rest of the, the masses out there. So I would start thinking really hard about some kind of target market that you would go after maybe not with a global reshift of your positioning, but maybe with some kind of a marketing campaign come up with, you know, what area do you have special expertise? Like maybe mm-hmm. it's, you know, chicken ranching or whatever I said before, <laughs> you know, maybe, it, but it's some kind of vertical or psychographic or segment of users uh, or sorry, buyers that you can identify. Like I want to help, I'm a web developer and I want to work with mission driven businesses because you can find a list of those, or I want to work with environmentalists, or I want to work with soccer moms or some demographic. These are the people I want to help. You know, there's a, a, like a physical, I do physical therapy for pregnant ladies. You know, it's a very specific kind of demographic. So I would think about that and figure where do you have an unfair advantage in a, a particular target market, whether it's experience, big client list, um, maybe it's family experience. Maybe your, your parents were dentists and you're going to target dentists or something because you understand their language and you know where they hang out, you know what they worry about. 
So that's a step I would take. I would think about if I had to pick a target market to focus on for the next six months, who would it be? Hmm. That's great. Hey, where are the best places for people to find you? Again, I, I have gotten so much from this episode, and I know that our listeners have also gotten a ton of great uh, information, and it's one that I'm going to go back and listen to again because it <laughs> has been so valuable. Um, but if people want to continue to learn more about value-based pricing, if they want to follow you and uh, maybe be a part of one of your, your courses or classes mm-hmm. um, that you hold, where can uh, people get a hold of you? Yeah, the best place is valuepricingbootcamp.com, and that'll redirect you to my mailing list. Um, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn, but I don't really go there that much and it's a bad place to have a conversation anyway because it's not necessarily private yeah i i am in email all the time and uh, i email thousands of people every single day and spend a lot of time answering questions so that is definitely the best place love it man jonathan i really appreciate all your your help today all your advice uh, i feel like we just got some free coaching so <laughs> i uh I, I really appreciate your your time hey anytime you guys it was fun thanks a lot Man, that was good. That was good. Ben, if you could summarize that action item, what would that be? Yeah, uh, to me, it sounded like Jonathan was saying, let's take a look at the people that we potentially can serve. What, what, do we, what unfair advantage do we have? What audience can we serve that would be um, somebody that we could offer a ton of value to? So figuring out what thing do you do that no one else does and figure out how to position yourself in a way that makes you unique and not just a commodity. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And just maybe making a list of a few ideas of what things you can offer, you know, what skills do you have and what audience could you serve that would be willing to pay for that and figure out, you know, what potential service you could provide to them and practice value-based pricing with that. Yeah, I think I think that's spot on. I mean, all this is just great for us as business owners and business leaders to just grow as individuals and increase the stability of our businesses. So, yeah, I love this episode. I think I'll be re-listening to it multiple times. Next week, we're excited to talk to you about how and why to start a podcast. I wish we had some kind of expert about podcasting that we could interview for this episode. Do you know anybody? You know, I know a guy who's dabbled in podcasting. (laughs) Really? Really? Who is this guy? Yeah. So I'm going to actually be sharing my presentation uh, for time to time. I get asked to speak about podcasting, uh, how to start a podcast, why would someone want to start a podcast? And so I'm going to share that knowledge with you guys, some value bombs. Uh, And so you're not going to want to miss that. I'm super excited about that. And I want to figure out why are we doing this podcast, Mark? (laughs) Well, tune in next week. (laughs) I can't wait to find out. How many episodes are we in? I'm going to learn why we're doing this. That's right. Um, Also, you can find out more about The Friday Habit. You can just go to thefridayhabit.com to find show notes for this episode. You can also find links to our websites, to Brand Viva, Mark's company, my company, Knapsack. And then at the bottom of the page, you can also download our guide to the Friday Habit system. It's a really valuable PDF that kind of walks you through how to set aside time in your business one day each week so that you can work on your business instead of in your business. And yeah, so check it out at thefridayhabit.com. Yeah, thank you guys so much for listening to The Friday Habit. And until next time, live every day like it's Friday. Friday.